0: morning. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, this week I had the uh, joy of sitting down and doing my taxes. Isn't that exciting? And I'll be honest, the older I get, the more complicated doing your taxes seems to, to get. And uh, I always feel like I'm forgetting something. You know, I'm one of those people who I like to understand as much as I can about the stuff that I'm doing. And to be honest, it's incomprehensible. Uh, to me, how the math works, I use some software and uh, you, you click yes, the one thing, and you owe like thousands of dollars more taxes. You hit no, you owe a lot less. I'm like, well, I'm hitting no, you know, <laughs> whatever that is. You know, but I think, no, I actually read it. I did, I, I answered truthfully, of course. Uh, but I think I, I have the essential nature of taxes. Tell us how much money you made from every single source imaginable and we'll tell you how much you owe us. I think that's the the essential truths about taxes. They want to know how much money you make so they know exactly how much money you need to pay them. Uh, And then math is involved. And so we won't get too far uh, down into that. And so, okay, it's a little difficult. Uh, It may be a little opaque, but You know, we can do it. You know, everybody can do it. Sometimes I think we come to the question of what is the essential nature of Christianity. You know, a lot of people say a lot of different things about being a follower of Jesus Christ. And people, I think, kind of like with taxes, they know enough about it, but they don't really understand what are the most important elements of Christianity. What is it? that we say is the most important thing to believe or to understand. How do we begin? In this passage that we have read this morning from John chapter 3, we see an individual who actually is quite experienced uh, in religious studies and understanding, uh, but is obviously someone who's struggling with the essence of the message that Jesus Christ has brought. And I don't think he's alone. I don't think it's just Nicodemus who struggles with these big ideas. I think many of us do as well. So as we look at this text, I want us to look at four essential elements of Christianity that's important for us to understand that we see clearly explained by Jesus Christ in this text. All right? So there are four. I know. That always makes people nervous. It shouldn't. We go quicker through four than we would through three, I promise. One is uh, a new birth is essential. Secondly, that birth must be a spiritual birth. Thirdly, you are not in control. Number four, you must believe in the one who is lifted up. Those are the four essential things we see in this text I want us to look at one by one. First of all, a new birth is required. Now, as we look at this story, of course, we need to do just a a little bit of explanation. Uh, Who is Nicodemus and why is he coming to Jesus, uh, as the text says, at night? Well, it identifies Nicodemus as a member of the council of the Jews. That means he's a part of the Sanhedrin. He is one of the... 70 most influential Jewish people in Jerusalem or in all of the uh, worship of God by the Jewish people. He is most likely, since he is on the council, uh, both older and wealthy... He also is called by Jesus the teacher of Israel, and so he is astute. He's described as a Pharisee, uh, which uh, there was actually a very defined group of people who were Pharisees. They were people who loved, who had memorized, who had committed actually by vow to follow all of the laws in the first five books of the Bible. This is not uh, a passerby. This is not someone who just curiously stalks you on social media. This is someone who's all in. And he has come to Jesus at night. Now, uh, I know that uh, some some of you are like, what's the deal with him coming at night? Well, let me put it as clearly as the text does. That's the time he came. <clears throat> you know, have you have you ever... You know, I mean, I know some of you are like this, and you know people like this, uh, that we read the Bible like it's a code book, you know, And and, and we're like desperately trying to find the enigma machine to break the code. He came at night. Now, it is possible that John is hinting that uh, perhaps he is coming from spiritual darkness. Uh, We'll let that, uh, you know, be something you meditate upon. Uh, But most likely he came at night because that's when Jesus wasn't being mobbed with other people. It was a time he could quietly sit and have a conversation. It was a time that rabbis were known to study and discourse in issues of the law. So it makes perfect sense uh, that he comes at this point in time Now, notice whenever he begins this conversation, uh, he seems to be making very positive comments to Jesus. Verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, uh, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, that sounds very complimentary, except if we read this in context, we see at the end of chapter 2 that many people believed in Jesus because they saw some miraculous signs, but that Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in the heart of a man. And so here, right on the heels of that statement, Nicodemus, a man identified there in John chapter 3, he comes and he says, oh, we're impressed with your teaching because we've seen these miracles, And it's fascinating because the way John has recounted this conversation, Jesus cuts him off. And I'll be honest, when you read it and you remember how uh, august uh, Nicodemus was, his age, his wealth, his position, all of that, you think, man, Jesus really pulls him up short. He's like in the middle of saying, wow, we've heard all these nice things about you. And Jesus just abruptly goes into, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And to be honest, that's a little bit of a struggle. You know, what? why does Jesus so abruptly seem to change topics on this very respected leader? Well, I love it. One uh, writer said, in many ways, we can read at the beginning of Nicodemus' comments, Uh, something that's leading up to a question. You can almost sense, you know how it is. We all know how to give the sandwich, right? You know, wow, doesn't your outfit uh, look good today? Uh, You know, I need to tell you, you're fired. But you look great, right? You know the sandwich. You know, you put... You, know, you put the hard thing in the middle of two positive things. And so here Nicodemus is beginning with, uh, we know you're a teacher come from God. You know, all the works that you've done. And, and Jesus can see where he's going. And it's most likely that Nicodemus has the same kind of questions that the council, uh, the council representatives sent to John the Baptist had. And what were those? Who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? Do you remember that way back uh, if you don't, you can go back and read John chapter, the end of John chapter 1. And those religious leaders are like, look, I'm going to try to triangulate you to figure out who you are. And so it's most likely that Nicodemus is working up to that. You know, he's seen the signs, he's heard some teaching, and he is curious about the true nature of Jesus. And Jesus' rather abrupt comment is Jesus' way of saying, you're not ready for that. You're not ready for me to tell you the truth about who I am. There is something that is essential that needs to happen first in order for you to be able to see and experience who I am and what I have come to bring. And that's why he goes immediately to this statement that in order to see the kingdom, he says, uh, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So here Jesus is saying the first and most essential thing about what he has come to teach about the truth of Christianity is the necessity of a new birth. Now, for those of you who are, uh, are Greek geeks uh, you know that that expression born again can also be translated born from above either way and it's talking about a, a new birth uh, that's different than your original birth which we'll get into in just a minute uh, and here he is saying this is absolutely essential a new birth why is that why is it that that's essential in terms of Christianity well Uh, Let's put it this way. It is essential because our instinct as human beings is that we can accomplish things through our own efforts. We can be good enough or work hard enough or try to stay away from the wrong things or maybe do all the right things. And Nicodemus actually has been schooled in this very way of thinking about moral and spiritual improvement. If I memorize everything God says in the law and I commit myself to a scrupulous observance of all of those things, I will be ready for this thing called the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God in Nicodemus' mind and now I hope in your mind is the understanding of the life of the new age when God is explicitly ruling in all of the universe and his people have been restored and every person of faith wants to be a part of that exciting kingdom and time. This kingdom of God. Jesus says you can't even see it unless there is a fundamental change in you, so radical that it can be called being born again. Now, why is that important for us to remember? I think it is because many of us, if you grew up in a Christian context, in a Christian home, one, you need to be thankful. That's a blessing. Uh, but sometimes we get so familiar with this language uh, that we fail to recognize the absolute radical and essential nature of it. Radical in the sense of Christianity is not something you can accomplish on your own. You simply do not have it in you. I like the way uh, the old reformer John Calvin says it. By the term born again, uh, he means not the amendment of a part, but the renewal of the whole nature. Hence it follows that there is nothing in us that is not defective. In other words, by needing to be born again, it is a way of Jesus saying, in order to see or experience the kingdom of God, you have to start all over. You have to become someone new. The Bible uses a variety of uh, language to describe this, including things like uh, regeneration, transformation, metamorphosis. All of these uh, words are used throughout the New Testament to explain the reality that you don't need just a small adjustment. You need a radical restart. Now, I know that that is hard for us to embrace, but it is absolutely essential. Now, quickly, for those of you who are older than 56, I say 56, <clears throat> that's what I am. I get asked that by some of you for some reason. I think it's because of how young I look. And, uh, and you're like, how old are you? You certainly can't be as old as my grandparents, right? Uh, anyway, uh, for those of you who are at least 56, you remember that in a previous presidential campaign, I know, we try not to think about those things uh, here on a Sunday morning, uh, there was a race between Gerald Ford uh, and a guy named Jimmy Carter, who was the governor uh, down in Georgia. And during that race, it really was a fascinating controversy that came out. And that was that uh, now President Carter uh, described himself as a born-again Christian. A born-again Christian. And uh, for those of you who are under 56, there were presidents before the current one. Uh, We do this every four years. It's great fun. Uh, But it was really a fascinating conversation uh, in American society about the distinction between a Christian and a born-again Christian. And, And it was like people thought there were two categories. Well, there's the regular old kind of Christian, you know, the kind of people who show up to church twice a year, even if it hurts. Uh, you know, they uh, check the box Christian as opposed to Jewish or uh, back then nobody was checking, uh, you know, anything other than those two really or nothing. And, uh, and that's what it meant. And then there were those crazy people, you know, those really radical people that called themselves born-again Christians. And, and of course, I was so wrong-headed Because if they had just looked back at John chapter 3, where that expression comes from, they would have seen that Jesus says, the only way you see or enter the kingdom of heaven is to be born again. There's only one kind of Christian. One who has started all over. One who has been born anew. Born from above. That's it. And that's so helpful for us. To be honest, I think some of us, there are two things that we can do to apply this. One is if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you can be thankful that God enabled you to be born again. And that should cause you to stop taking any credit for your status before God. How can I take credit for it? Can I take credit for being born in the first place? I mean, imagine if on Mother's Day, you're hanging out with your mother. And you know, she says... Son, why haven't you brought me a card, or flowers, or a gift, or called me on Mother's Day? And I say, well, really, I'm the one who decided to be born. I don't know why you should get any credit for it. I don't know about you. I don't think that'd fly with mom. You know, mom seems to remember you not being involved in you deciding to be born, I mean, maybe she and your dad got involved. Maybe they had some conversations or maybe they, you know, got involved. Maybe they even had to go to a doctor to to try to become pregnant. Maybe they worked very hard at it. We don't know. I I don't really want to know about that stuff. I don't ask questions about it. Uh, You know, and then whenever the time finally came... And you came into the world, you didn't really work very hard. Your mom, though, worked herself to death. You know, she had to recover for days and weeks. And if you were a big-headed baby like me, she reminds you of it all the time. In other words, you had nothing to do with being born. And friend, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, you had nothing to do. With becoming a believer in Jesus Christ, it was his desire for you to be born again. That's very helpful. Second application, when we deal with other people that we are praying, encouraging, talking to about becoming a Christian, let us remember that it is essential that God does a work in them for them to be able to see the kingdom of heaven, In other words, you cannot berate them into the kingdom of heaven. You cannot guilt them into the kingdom of heaven. You cannot shame them into the kingdom of heaven. You have to pray them into the kingdom of heaven and pray that God will work in a supernatural way in their life, that they might be born again, that they can see the kingdom of heaven. It is amazing how angry we get at people who cannot do anything to be born again instead of praying. That God would change them and help them to start anew and afresh. And that is something that I think is encouraging to us. Well, connected to this is the second thing that is essential that this birth is a spiritual birth. Now, we've covered some of that already, so I will go quicker. But notice Nicodemus's response in verse four. He's a little literal, he's a lot literal, he's grossly literal. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Ooh, That's just gross. What is Nicodemus doing? He's reeling. Nicodemus is reeling. He's just This guy who has worked his whole life to know what the Bible says, to do everything that it says, to be at the top of his game, spiritually speaking. He's being told, you can't do anything. God has to do something in you that enables you to be born again. He's reeling. He's like, how how, how do I do that? How is that even possible? And he gives this very literal response. And notice uh, what Jesus says to him, verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Notice this is a parallel passage then to being born from above or born again. This idea of being born of water and spirit. And what does that mean? Well, Nicodemus wants to know later... And we'll see in the text that when he doesn't seem to to understand that, you know, notice that Jesus rebukes him uh, just a little bit. In verse 10, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? What Jesus is saying is, look, you know the Bible. You, You spend your life reading it, memorizing it, explaining it. How do you not understand this picture of being born of water and of the Spirit? And why does Jesus expect him to know it? Because God talked about this concept in the Old Testament. We've already heard this reading in our service, but I want to introduce to you again one such passage in Ezekiel chapter 36... Uh, where God is talking about what he is going to do to his people when he restores the people of God. And this is what he says he will do. I will take you, Ezekiel 36, beginning in 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And then listen. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. Jesus is saying by the use of this expression to this guy who knew the Old Testament. You must be born of water and spirit. He's saying Ezekiel 36 has to happen to you. It has to happen to you. In other words, God has to, through the power of his spirit, cleanse you and renew you. Notice the language of Ezekiel 36. The old you is removed and a new you is put in. In other words, it's the same concept he's explaining. And so he says, how do you, a teacher of Israel, not know this? In other words, God talked about doing this for years. This is what's going to happen. You need to have a spiritual birth. Now, here I want us to pause and I want us to think about why it's important that this is spiritual. Jesus tells us right here, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And so here, Jesus is saying is, look, he's not using flesh here in the way that Paul uses it later. He's just talking about You know, our our physical being, the reality of of being an embodied human being. You know, he's like the best that our embodied human beingness can do is stuff that is natural for embodied human beings. Flesh, the best it can do is flesh stuff. You need something else in order to experience the kingdom of God, to know the life of that new age You need the spirit. Flesh does what flesh does. Spirit does what spirit does. And that is so important. And yet it is an essential quality of the Christian life that I believe all of us neglect, live in denial of, and rebel against day by day. We genuinely, maybe not you, me, I genuinely believe, at least in my actions and in my thoughts, that I can just keep working harder in my embodied self and accomplish spiritual accomplishments. I believe I can become more like Jesus just by trying harder, by reading more, by, you know, putting my will in high gear to accomplish it. And Jesus says, yes, what you'll get out of fleshly efforts is a fleshly result. The essential truth of Christianity is that it is about the work of the Spirit in us and through us, not about what we're doing ourselves. Now, again, quick application point on that. Then why do we act so prideful about what God gives us in our life if it's not something we accomplish in our flesh but he gave us through the Spirit? You know, it is an oxymoron to say a proud Christian, or it should be. Because a Christian understands those things that have value and merit and qualify me to experience the kingdom of heaven, that give me eternal life, which Jesus introduces uh, at the end of our text, are all spiritually given to God be the glory through Jesus Christ. For all that he has done thirdly I know it's a we have to keep moving uh, you are not in control I know this is such a happy sermon I'm, I'm stroking your ego like crazy here today right you know I know we all like to be in control right we all like to be in control it's probably why I don't like doing my taxes I am not in control You know, they tell me how much I'm supposed to pay, and I just believe them. You know, I'm just now thinking about it. My computer software could tell me I owe anything, and I would pay it. You know, and uh, they could just keep the difference. If you are software engineers, there's an idea for those of you who still aren't Christians. Um, (laughs) I just thought about that. It's not like I understand why I owe that much money. They could really tell me anything. Um, I mean, they have my bank account information anyway. But it... Sorry, just a moment. It's hard to believe how out of control that we really are. You know, it is—it uh, is an amazing thing. I like being in control. I like the semblance of control. Uh, you know, I remember when I was a kid. Uh, one of my first cars had this thing called a gear shift in it. I know, I know. There are only a handful of you who know what that is. Had this. It had a third pedal on the left which, shockingly enough, did not just move to the next song on your playlist. Uh, you had to press it down in order to go from one gear to the next. We call it a standard transmission. And i got to be honest, I missed that a little bit. I mean, my, my Subaru has little paddle shifters on there so I can have that experience. But if there's no clutch, it's not the same, right? You know, and, and this is what I would do as a stupid youth. I'm being clear that it was as a stupid youth, for those of you who are just learning to drive. Do not do this. I would sit at a red light or a stop sign or just at the end of my driveway. I would uh, hold the clutch down, have the car in first. I would rev the engine up. I would pop the clutch just to hear the sound of my parents' money they spent on those tires evaporate (laughs) into smoke as the tires squealed. There was, it may be part of the reason for my current level of hearing loss that I loved hearing the engine get to about 8,000 RPMs before you change gears, just for fun. You know, there's nothing like hearing a Nissan Sentra get to 8,000 <laughs> RPMs. You know, effectively the engine is begging you to change the gear, right? And then you shift it down and you get that satisfying, uh, you know. It's great fun. And why did I do that? Because I like control. Don't we? Don't we love control? You pick your area of control. I have like a million. But what I love is how Jesus describes how this happens. Nicodemus is struggling, right? How, how does this happen? Uh, and in verse 7, he says, Do not marvel. That I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, this is a fascinating passage because, in both Hebrew, the language of the Old Testament, and Greek, the language of the New Testament, the word uh, for spirit and the word for wind are the same word, as well as the word for breath. And so you kind of have to look at the context to figure out whether it's talking about spirit, wind, or breath. And uh, it's all great fun. Uh, it gives people who know those languages lots of things to do on a Saturday night uh, when they don't have a date and all of that. And uh, and so when we look at this passage, Jesus is using the same word for wind and the same word for spirit. But what is he doing? He's making a comparison. Uh, Nicodemus is struggling, how does this happen? And what Jesus is saying by using this illustration of the wind and comparing it to the spirit is it happens in ways you don't understand it. In other words, when you go outside, you can feel the wind blow but you're not exactly sure where it came from. I know, you say, I can look on my app and it said it came from New Mexico or it came from Canada. Do you really understand what that means? You know, where did it come from? Where is it going? You know, how does it work? But he says you can see the effects of it. Now, if I haven't told you, uh, I lived in Florida for many years and uh, in Charleston, which are all on the coast, the east coast. It's where this big body of water called the ocean is. For those of you who lived here in Colorado a long time. Uh, And in the ocean, storms come up. Not just a little bit of wind, but a lot of wind. Remember last year, right before, or two years ago, right before I, I moved here, we had like 100, hour, 100 mile per hour straight winds that kind of came off the mountains and swept into town. Yeah, that was terrible, right? Well, hurricanes, I've been through five Cat 3 or better hurricanes. A Cat 3 hurricane is uh, 123 miles an hour, somewhere around there or above. And uh, it is no fun. And let me tell you, you might not understand exactly how the wind works, but you see its effect in the middle of a hurricane. The trees bend over in half, transformers blow up. Uh, It's really remarkable. It's like lightning popping all around you. Uh, Roof shingles start flying into your neighbor's yard. Uh, Tree limbs began to fall down. Uh, You cry and, and wonder why you stayed, right? I mean, all these things happen because of the wind. But one thing's for sure, you are not in control. You are not in control. What Jesus, by using this illustration with wind, with Nicodemus, He's saying, yes, you need it. It's absolutely essential in Christianity that you are born anew, that this new birth is spiritual, but you are not in control of it. You are not in control of it. It is something that God does, which is why in a few moments, whenever we're taking communion, I will say to anyone who's here who's not sure where they are in terms of being able to see or experience the kingdom of God, that they need to ask God to show them the truth of the gospel, the beauty of Jesus, that they need to ask him to do a work in them. And you do because you're not in control. It is a gift of God. That he gives us the ability to see these truths by changing us, by renewing us, regenerating us, causing us to be born again. And we are not in control. I know we love to be in control, but when it comes to the truth of the gospel, you are not in control. It is the Spirit's job. And the Spirit works the way the Spirit works. And we may not know how he works, but we can see its effects in a life changed by the power of the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, Not only a performance, but a desire to do what God commands, a desire to treat other people the way we would like to be treated, a desire to put the needs of the other in front of ourselves or to use the language of a series we did not that long ago, we see the Spirit working in us by seeing love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and self-control and goodness increasing in our life. Why? Because the Spirit has moved and is moving in our life. And so this is the third thing. We are not in control. And lastly, and certainly just as importantly, the gospel includes as an essential element that we look at the one who is lifted up. Notice this language. It's interesting. At the end of our text, uh, verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the, servant in the wo- serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Or, uh, to be honest, we could read that, uh, that whoever, be- whoever believes may have eternal life in him. And what is he talking about? As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness. Well, to be honest, unless you're a Bible geek, I'll excuse you for not remembering this story. It's a tiny little story uh, in the book of Numbers, uh, which, to be honest, in our annual Bible reading plans we often skip. Uh, Right, you get to Numbers and you get to this very interesting story in Numbers chapter 21. Uh, God had delivered the people out of slavery in Egypt and they're wandering through the wilderness and he is graciously giving them food and drink and they are whining about it. Does that sound uncharacteristic of people in general? No, it does not, right? Right. Haven't you ever sat at a restaurant? This happens almost every time I sit at a restaurant and you talk about some other restaurant. That never happens. It always happens The Carrie and I. We'll be sitting at a restaurant. We'll be talking about some other restaurant that we like maybe more than this restaurant. And I'm like, why are we at this restaurant? And I don't know, it's just part of our nature to not particularly enjoy the thing God has given us at that moment. And the people of God were like that as they were coming out of slavery in Egypt and they were whining, complaining, grumbling about the food God provided for free and the drink that He provided in a wilderness. And so God brought a judgment to those people, He brought fiery serpents. I don't know what those are, I don't want to meet one, right? Some of you are snake people, Uh, I know at least one teenager in this room who really wants one and I'm looking for him, I'll find him later. And that's just weird, I mean, you should probably talk to somebody about that if you're a snake person because snakes are evil, just that simple. For those of you who are snake owners, my email is not listed on the website. But no, fiery serpents, and he brings fiery serpents, and they bite people, and people are dying, and they cry out to God, and they're sorry for being such a whiny bunch of people who are ungrateful for all that God has provided. And Moses, I'm actually explaining this story much longer than the story is, which I know you're like, I'm so surprised that he's amplifying something, right? Moses, Moses is told by God to do something very interesting. He says, I want you to make a bronze serpent, a bronze fiery serpent, because that's very important. And I want you to put it on a pole and lift it up and anyone who is bitten can look at it and be healed. That's the story. Why? Why would would God use a bronze serpent to heal people from snake bites? Was because they're gonna look and they're going to see the cause of their affliction They're going to see the reality of their danger. And they're going to see in that bronze serpent a provision of God to provide them deliverance from the temporal and physical effects of that judgment. Jesus says that is a good analogy for what the Son of Man is going to do. He's going to be lifted up. Now in the book of John, John, uh, we see this language, lifted up. And it actually has two meanings that for John hold together. One is it's talking about Jesus himself in the body being put up on a piece of wood in front of other people. We call it the crucifixion. And the lifting up is his death. And in that death, we can see the analogy between the bronze serpent because just as People looked at the serpent and said, that is the cause of my physical distress and my physical peril. People look at the cross and can see that it is what we deserve because of our sin and rebellion against God. A man cursed and hanging upon a tree is exactly what we should receive. And we see in it our true, not physical peril but spiritual peril, and we look and we see Jesus hanging there in our stead because he is God's provision to make us not just physically better, but spiritually better, different, changed, so that if we look and believe, we can be right with God. And no, there will be no more curse or judgment for us because it has all been taken by the Son of Man who was lifted up. And so the first idea of being lifted up is this idea of Jesus and his death on the cross. But the second idea that's tied in with it in the book of John and the other gospels is that being lifted up is Jesus being glorified. Is his being glorified? And what does that mean? Him being honored, him being made more famous. Whenever he, and you say, how in the world can a horrible, excruciating, torturous death on a cross possibly be holding up the glory of Jesus? Because in it we see God's perfect justice and love and mercy and grace. For those who would believe in it, we see how far God is willing to go to cause you to see and enter the kingdom of heaven. And in it, we can only say glory, glory, because it's tied together with not just his death, but his burial, his resurrection, and eventually his ascension into heaven. And this is what we must, according uh, to Jesus, here in John chapter 3, we must see and believe. The Son of Man will be lifted up and people must believe. That means trust in Him. And why, why is that such a helpful way for us to finish off? Because to be honest, we're looking at somebody. We're looking at somebody in our life. To make us feel okay about ourselves, about our relationship with God, about our hope for eternity, about our ability to live life in community now we're looking at someone, and we're either going to probably look at ourselves and believe in us, which, to be honest, is the spirit of the age in this moment. Well why believe in me? I believe in me and my potential and my power and my ability. And what we've already seen in this text, all you'll get from depending on your flesh is flesh. And we need something better. We need something new. And so Jesus says, Christianity is not just a new birth or a spiritual birth or you not being in control. It's about looking to someone else, looking to Jesus and saying, you, I will put my trust in you and who you are and what you've done. This is essential to understand what following Christ is all about. This is the essential thing to know to even begin that journey. Look at the Son, lift it up, and believe in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for how kind you are to us. You give us your word. You explain so clearly in your word things that are essential for us to believe. Forgive us for where we are. Let those essential truths get clouded or sidelined or made less important. But may we remember, Lord, that we must be born again. It must be through the power of your spirit. We aren't in control, but we do look to Jesus, the one who is lifted up, and we believe in him. If that is not true, Of someone sitting here, if there are people here who, like Nicodemus, who are saying, how can this be? Spirit, please move in their minds and their hearts that they might look to Jesus and see his love, mercy, and grace in glory on the cross, we pray in Christ's name.